Okay. Take our seats again. Um, it's great to welcome Stephen Van Rain with us this morning. Uh, Stephen is uh, lead pastor of Jubilee Church in Cape Town, a big church in Cape Town. Some of us spent the day with him at a conference yesterday, and this man just oozes Jesus and loves the church. So can we have a huge gateway uh, welcome for Stephen to come and preaches? Well, good morning, everybody. It's really great to be here. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, could you turn to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians and chapter 1 and verse 8. Uh, just great to finally uh, be with you uh, in person, really been tracking uh, your journey and what you guys have been up to. Uh, my wife and I are very good friends uh, with Matt and Grace, and so we've uh, taken a keen interest in, in terms of what God's been doing here, and I just want to commend you as a church just for your various acts of faith, and it's just great this new uh, building that you guys have stepped out for and uh, trusted God for and given sacrificially, so, so well done about that, just really excellent, and it's great to see what you guys are going to be doing uh, in May. Uh, this uh, School of Life just looks absolutely fantastic, just want to uh, add my encouragements around Alpha and the marriage course, both of those are just great events to be able to invite folk with. For some people who don't want to kind of engage with anybody, uh, the marriage course is perfect because if you, you can say to friends that aren't yet believers, come to the marriage course, you're going to have a table by yourself, you won't have to speak to another Christian, you'll just be given a really good meal and uh, you'll really enjoy the event. So for some people that's like perfect, I can actually invest in my marriage and not speak to a Christian, perfect, and get a meal, wow, brilliant. And then Alpha is just a fantastic course for people who are looking at the claims of Christ. I'm, uh, my wife and I are in, in a life group that is led by a couple that both came to faith four years ago when they did the Alpha course. Our experience at doing Alpha is that a disproportionate number of people who actually attend the course actually become believers in Jesus. Because when you actually just look at who Jesus is and what He's done and evidence for the Bible, it's, it's just it's utterly compelling. So I just really encourage you, you've got a couple of weeks to do this. Uh, we don't have the power to get people to say yes, but we do have the power to invite them. And I just encourage you just to spend a little bit of time this week praying about, hey, who could I invite to one of these events? And, 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 and the awesome thing is you guys are doing so many different events, like there's got to be something for somebody, like in the school of life, correct? I mean, there's so many different things going on. But uh, I encourage you around those uh, two particular uh, courses that are taking place. One other thing just to uh, encourage you about is a big event that's uh, taking place on the 11th of June, a global advance event that's happening in Southampton, and I would just really love all of you to attend that event. You, you go to the most amazing church in that you're the only church in the whole world that isn't going to be paying for the event as individuals. You can go there for free because your church is sponsoring you. How amazing is that? And I just want to say, we've got people coming from South Africa, uh, from Kenya, from Tanzania, from Madagascar, from Singapore, uh, from Australia, from America. Could you please drive up the road? Could you, could, could you do that? Like, 
we've told them like how amazing everybody is in England. It's going to be like really embarrassing if like we're all there from all over the world. And it's like, where's everybody? It's just like, well, you know, it's a sunny day and, you know, there's, there's a lot of dune pool and, you know, you can't make everything, you know. So I'd just really love it if you guys could uh, uh, really prioritize that that's taking place uh, on the 11th of June. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading from verse 8. I'm reading from the NIV, uh, so some words may be slightly different. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8, Apostle Paul writes the following, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us. As you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as we come to your word this morning. We pray that you would be with us. We pray that you would help and instruct us from your word. And all God's people say, I want to look at this passage under three headings. Gospel honesty, gospel breadth, and gospel power. Let's begin with gospel honesty. Really, for us to fully appreciate uh, what's going on in these few verses uh, in 2 Corinthians, it's important that we know the context here. Paul is writing to a church that he has helped found and a church that he has got deep affection for. This is the second letter that he's written to this church and the first letter that we have recorded. Paul needs to deal with some issues in this church related to some immaturities. It was a kind of an immature church and, and Paul needed to provide some teaching and some instruction to help them bring them to maturity. But in the second letter, it's very different. In the second letter, Paul is forced to give a defense of his ministry amongst the church. Since Paul had started the church and founded the church, he had moved on, and in his absence, there had been these other leaders that had appeared, these X-factor kind of leaders, people that humbly referred to themselves as super apostles, and... Um, when these super apostles rocked in, the church was like, wow, this is what we'd always been looking for. Finally, some decent leadership. You know, really, Paul, we've now realized how unimpressive you really are. And in, in fact, in chapter 10 and verse 10 of this book, um, he, he quotes them where they say, Paul, you, you're really unimpressive in person when compared to these super apostles. And really, what the 2 Corinthians is, is a letter of Paul giving his defense, and his defense of his ministry amongst this church actually begins at verse 8. And I just want to suggest to you that if you read this letter, what you're going to discover is, is Paul's defense is like no other defense. You, you, you're really not prepared for his defense at all, because he begins his defense in verse 8 by saying, I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Do you get his argument? The Corinthians are saying, Paul, you are weak and unimpressive. And Paul's defense is this, you don't know the half of it. You think I'm weak, but I'm actually way weaker 
than you would ever first imagine. You think I'm unimpressive. Let me, let me give you the whole story. I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that indeed in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. And when we read these things, we, we must surely be thinking to ourselves, Paul, what, what, what are you doing? I mean, this approach of Paul is so counterintuitive. It's so countercultural. It's crazy, right? It's, it's, it's not just in Cape Town. My, my guess is that in Pool right here, we, we, we live in a culture and a context where, where everybody's on a marketing binge, right? Whether, whether personally or corporately. We all train from the very earliest age to really put our best foot forward. We need to become skilled at airbrushing our weaknesses and accentuating our positives and making ourselves look as best as we possibly can. And the reason why we are tempted to do this is because we live in a time and a culture that if you want to be accepted, if you want to be included, you must bring something of value. In order to get in anywhere, you must bring some value. That, that's how it works in the United Kingdom, doesn't it? If, if you want to get into the, the top colleges or universities, what do you need to bring? You need to bring really good marks. Just two days ago, somebody's talking about these, is, is, is it Russell universities? These, uh, you know, if, if you want to get into the elite, if you want to get into the top 25 universities, then you need to bring really good grades. And if you want to get into the top sporting teams, then you really need to bring a lot of uh, ability. If you want to live on the Sandbanks Peninsula, what, what do you need to bring? You need to bring truckloads of cash in order to be able to make it to the Sandbanks. If only we worked harder, what is wrong with us? And then, of course, there's those amazing exclusive uh, clubs that, 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 that you can attend. Do you, do you know about those amazing exclusive clubs where you've got to know somebody really well and really famous and, and really bright and beautiful, and they can recommend you to get into these clubs? Some of you are not, not in your head. My point exactly. My point exactly. You need to be connected to even know about these clubs, let alone actually attend them. That's, that's how the world system works. If you want to get in, if you want to be included, you need to bring something of value. And in fact, that's how most religious systems work. Most religious systems work like this. This is the standard. You need to hit the standard. You need to make the moral grade. And if you can hit the moral grade and if you can reach the standards, if you are good enough, then we will include you. So when Paul begins his defense of his letter, trying to defend his ministry amongst them, and they say, you're weak and unimpressive, and Paul says, you don't even know the half of it. I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. Everything inside of us wants to shout out, no, no, Paul, that's not how it works. You do want them to be uninformed. You do want them to be uninformed about your weaknesses. That's how it works. You shut up about your weaknesses. You airbrush your weaknesses. You don't tell people about your weaknesses. You're committing celebrity suicide here, Paul. What are you talking about? This is crazy. But Paul won't listen to us. He just carries on through the whole letter. In fact, by chapter 11, he is cataloging all the bad stuff that has happened to him. And, and when you read the letter, you think, this is crazy. What are you doing, Paul? This is insane. Paul, are, what are you smoking? You're on something. And Paul is on something. 
But what he's on is the gospel, friends. Paul is on the gospel. And because he believes the gospel and has received the gospel, he realizes that the gospel changes everything. The gospel isn't a slight modification of the worldly system as we know it. Like, 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 you're doing really well and really successful, and, and, and we'll include Jesus, we'll insert Jesus in the mix just to get you to do even a little bit better. No, 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 no. The gospel isn't just a slight modification on the current world systems. It is completely different. In fact, it is the exact opposite. It is upside down. It is the complete reversal of human values. Friends, let's just think about this. How do you become a Christian? Maybe you're here this morning and you're visiting and some friend brought, brought you along and you kind of, I wonder how I can become a Christian. How do you become a Christian? Do you become a Christian by kind of rolling out your Christian credentials? Do you become a Christian by showing people how good you are? Is, is Christianity at its heart uh, those that have morally outperformed others? Is that how you become a Christian? Do you become a Christian by just being better than other people? And then Jesus says, those are the kind of people I want. People that know how to morally outperform others. Is, is that how you become a Christian? No, you become a Christian when you're willing to admit that you are bankrupt. When you're willing to admit that left to yourself, you could never save and rescue yourself, and that actually you're not bringing anything of value to the table. You can become a Christian when you're willing to admit that actually it requires nobody less than God Himself in order to save and rescue you. And friends, can you see how radically different that is to the ways of the world? In the ways of the world, you get in when you bring something of value. You get into the university when you bring your marks, or you bring your money to the neighborhood, or, or, or you bring your great degree to get the job that you've always wanted, or, or you bring your sporting ability. The way that you get into something is by, by bringing something of value, but you only get into Christianity when you're willing to admit that you don't bring anything of value. You only get into Christianity when you're willing to declare bankruptcy and actually receive a divine and eternal bailout. And friends, because the gospel is radically different, the, 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 the exact opposite of the ways of the world, it releases us from faking it or needing to pretend that we are better than we really are. Because the way that you become a Christian is by acknowledging your weaknesses and deficiencies. And because of that, it means that we can come to Jesus just as we are. We can come unvarnished, warts and all, and know that Jesus loves us, accepts us, dies on the cross for us in order that we might be brought into the family. The reality of the gospel releases us from needing to prove ourselves and justify ourselves to others. Maybe that you here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, and um, the reason you're not yet a Christian is because you really can't stand church. And you, the, the reason why you can't stand church is because you really see church as, how shall I describe it, a, a Mary Poppins club. You, you remember the iconic scene uh, from the movie Mary Poppins, you know, the scene when she's first introduced to the children that she's required to look after. And Mary Poppins has this magical measuring tape that reveals the true character of whoever it measures. And you remember that Mary Poppins uh, 
measures the, the little boy, and it says, extremely stubborn and suspicious. And, and, and then she me uh, measures the, the, the girl that she needs to look after, and it's rather inclined to giggle, doesn't put things away. And having done this, the boy, being a boy, won't just have the kids measured. He's like, <clears throat> excuse me, can, can you measure yourself? And you'll remember, of course, that Mary Poppins takes the measure, and then she measures herself, and then she puts it out and says, just as I expected, Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. <laughs> and maybe some of you here this morning, and you don't want to be here next week, and the reason why you don't want to be here next week is you can't stand Christians, because Christians are like a gathering of Mary Poppins types, practically perfect in every way. If only you could be like us, practically perfect in every way. And it's nauseating, it's horrible, it's the last place you want to be. The last place you want to be is with people that are dripping with self-righteousness. What could possibly be worse than gathering once a week with people who think that they are practically perfect in every way? You find it nauseating. If you find it nauseating, I've got some good news for you this morning. So does God. God finds it nauseating because it's not the gospel message. Church isn't a gathering of people that are practically perfect in every way. Church isn't a gathering of people who have morally outperformed everybody else. Quite the contrary. The church is a gathering of people that are so fundamentally flawed that it required nothing less than God himself to come and save and rescue them. And friends, this, this, this message is so radical, it, it's so different to the ways of the world that it should be utterly transforming. Friends, the Christian message isn't new petrol into the old engine, it's a whole new engine. It's a whole new operating system. And because it's a whole new operating system, we no longer need to manage the truth, we can simply tell the truth. We can share our weaknesses. We can share our vulnerabilities. We don't need to put our best foot forward. We can just be honest about who we really are. But more than that, we can be at peace with ourselves because we're not frantically trying to prove ourselves and justify ourselves and qualify ourselves. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul lists his incredible spiritual CV, his incredible spiritual pedigree. And then he writes the following, he says, I consider everything a loss, my incredible CV, I consider all of that lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom's sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God is by faith. Prince, can I ask you this morning, have, have, have you got the, off the treadmill of needing to prove yourself and justify yourself and establish yourself? Prince, can I lovingly ask you that question? Because you know what? It's, 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 it's possible to know Jesus. It's possible to love Jesus. It's possible to be in Christian leadership and still deep down feel like you need to bring something of value to the game. You, you still need to prove yourself and 
justify yourself and establish yourself. And, and deep down, if you're honest with yourself, you still, you know that you are still playing the marketing game. Deep down, you're still very insecure because you're not sure that you are fully and eternally accepted apart from your performance. But friends, the gospel message is this, that we are justified by faith through trusting in Jesus, not by works, so that no one can boast. And friends, when we allow the gospel to truly penetrate us, it means that we get off the treadmill of needing to prove ourselves, establish ourselves, justify ourselves, but we can rest fully and wonderfully and amazingly in the grace of Jesus Christ. So firstly, gospel honesty. Secondly, gospel breadth. The thing that I love about the Bible is that the Bible casts a vision of God that is big enough to really embrace all of life. There's some people that I know that kind of only have a paradigm uh, that they can live with, which I call the God of the good stuff. Uh, and whilst God is definitely the God of the good stuff, James 1.17 tells us every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. When we read the whole Bible, what we discover is that God isn't simply the God of the good stuff, but actually God is sovereign and in control of all things, which means He is able to use even the bad stuff in our lives to work for His uh, glory and our good. The incredible message of the Bible is this, God is big enough not just to endorse the good things or be the source of the good things in your life. God is big enough to order even the bad things that happen in your life for His glory and for your good. And so what is very interesting in these a few verses that we've read in 2 Corinthians 1 is that although Paul goes through incredible pain, and we would be careful not to rush over this, because this is an incredible couple of verses where the Apostle Paul opens up the true state of his heart. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure. You under, anybody under great pressure here? Apostle Paul can relate. He said, we, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Have you been in that kind of context? Like, like you, you can be under pressure, but it's just like, hey, I'm under pressure, I'm going to get through this. Uh, you can be under pressure, and it can be, uh, this is tough, I hope I can get through this. But, but, but then you get to this, under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. This isn't close. This isn't going to the third umpire. The, the, you know, this, this is, there's just no ways we're going to make it far beyond our ability to endure, so that indeed in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. What does that mean? What does that mean? I, I, I don't fully know what Paul means, but what I do know is that there is such a tremendous pressure in Paul's life that he didn't even feel like he could carry on living. In his heart, he felt the sentence of death. This is so way beyond me. I'm so out of my depth. I'm under such pressure that in my heart, I feel the sentence of death. Friends, this isn't a small thing. This isn't a little thing. 
This is a severe trauma. This is a severe trauma where somebody is utterly and completely out of their depth. But friends, what is interesting in these verses is that we don't just see Paul describe his challenge, but what we do see is Paul describing God at work in the midst of his challenge. Paul doesn't just define what's going wrong, he also draws our attention to the fact that although things are incredibly tough, so tough that they are far beyond his ability to endure, nevertheless, he highlights God's work. He places his pain and his confusion and his difficulty into a greater redemptive arc. Although he is going through an incredible difficult experience, that doesn't mean God has left him or forsaken him. No, 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 no. God is at work. And God is actually using and redeeming these negative things for God's glory and for His good. In fact, Paul, in another letter that he wrote to, to the Roman church, summarizes this as radically as this. He says, for we know, which whenever Paul says that, it's because he wants us to know. And, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. What's the very, very difficult word to swallow in that verse? And we know that in all things, God works together for the good, for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. What's, 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 what's the very difficult word to swallow there? All. Like, seriously? Seriously? Like, maybe if I've, like, you know, had an incredible week, and it's totally amazing. Maybe I could say, and we know that in most things, God's working for the good. Like, like at my best day, it's like, Lord, I'm English, you know. It's like at my best day, I could muster up, and He's working most things for the good. But, but seriously, all things, are you kidding me? And if I'm like, if I'm going the real honesty thing, if I don't need to fake it, then I'm just going to say that um, God's working some things for the good. God's working some things for the good. And on a very, very bad day, it's like God's working the good things for the good. Like, I, I can do that. If it's good, okay. God's working that for the good. But anything else, I don't know what's going on. It just seems random. It seems chaos. But you, 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 you can't be serious that He's working all things for the good. Because if He's working all things for the good, then He's working that thing for the good. And there's no ways that that thing can be working for the good. There's no ways that, not, not that. That can't be being worked in for good. There's, there's, there's no ways that's happening. But the verse says that God is working all things for the good. Friends, we don't need to muster up much faith. We don't have to have a very big God to have a God who works the good things for the good. I could actually stand to you today and say, I've got a promise over all of your lives. If only you would trust me, I guarantee that I will work the good for the good in your life. I could do that. Because if it's good, it's good. And then it's working for your good. I don't need any supernatural power to be able to do that. But it's quite another thing to say that I'm working all things for the good. Only God can say that. Only God can say I'm working all things for the good. Michael Eakin says that if you truly understand and embrace the truth expressed by Romans 828, it could be fairly translated, when everything, when everything is going wrong, actually everything is going right. 
Because if God's working all things for the good, it means he's working the bad things for the good. And if he's working the bad things for the good, that means that when everything's going wrong, actually everything's going right. When Paul was at his lowest moment, when he was despairing even of life, just a little while later, he's able to look back and say, actually, God's at work. God's actually working that for the good. That was terrible. That was horrible. I've never wished that on myself. I'd never want to go through that again. But as I look back over it, I realize actually God was working for the good. Have, have, have you been able to do that? You've been able to do that in your life, go through something that's very difficult, very painful, but actually realize God was at work? I became a Christian when I was 16 years old. A friend of mine at school had invited me in October to attend a youth event that was happening actually at Jubilee in the January. That was the October for an event that was happening uh, in the January. In the December of that year, uh, my mom left my dad for another man, got remarried, very messy divorce. Uh, for those of you who are children of a divorced uh, family, you'll know that something irrational but very tangible happens when you're a kid of that age. You, you can't help but blaming yourself. I remember at that time uh, in South Africa in 1990, I was just filled with incredible shame. In fact, I was filled with such shame about what happened in my family that I didn't tell anybody, not even my closest friends. And I remember in the April of 1990, um, after my mother had got remarried and now had a new surname, uh, we used to bring home notices from school and it was required that your parents would sign the notice to acknowledge that they've received the content of it. And so my mother had seen the notice, she had signed it with her new surname, torn off the slip. I can uh, remember the classroom, I can remember where I'm seated, <laughs> seated uh, to this day, standing there, class captain comes around to collect the thing, I hand, out the, I hand my slip out, class captain looks at the slip and hands it back to me and says, Steve, stop mucking about. Your parents need to sign this. And uh, hand this back, say that. He hands it back. Your parents need to sign it. Stop mucking about. Third time, I hand it. He was actually a very bright guy. Being a very, he was a very successful businessman, one of the top businessmen in South Africa. He, he kind of worked out okay, something's going on here that I don't know. And he took the slip. If you had asked me, when was the first time I really felt God like, speak to me as a, as a really new Christian? It was actually when I was reading 2 Corinthians. And actually just a few verses ahead of where I've just read. Where Paul says, praise be to the God and Father, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. And it was the first time when I read a passage of Scripture in the Bible and it radically hit me because as I read those few verses, I just realized God knows. God isn't harsh. He's a God of compassion and He's a God of comfort. God knows. God cares. But more than that, God is at work. Because the promise isn't just 
You're a broken 16-year-old, and I want to help you. That is the message. But there's more to the message than I just want to help and comfort you. It's I want to help and comfort you so that you can comfort others with the help that you got when you were in trouble. And you can be a blessing to others. You can pour out the comfort that you receive to others and help them in their journey. And in a moment when I read these verses, I just realized I wasn't a victim of circumstance. I wasn't going to be locked in to being a statistic and being part of a broken family. Actually, God was at work. And God could firstly come to me and heal me and fill me with His love and compassion and care and work in me. And then use me to care and help with others who were in a different form of trouble with the comfort that I myself have received. Friends, can I ask you this morning, what, what, what are you facing? What, what trouble are you facing? Do, do you believe that, 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 that if you would trust God and if you would look to God that He could actually... He could actually take that bad thing, that difficult thing, that stressful thing, that grinding down thing, and he could take that thing and he could work it for his glory. And more than that, he could work it for your good. Friends, God is at work. God is at work. There's a gospel breath that God doesn't just work when everything's going well. Actually, God illuminates and becomes more powerful and amazing when we realize he's at work even in our darkest moments. So firstly, gospel honesty. Secondly, gospel breadth. And finally, gospel power. What's very interesting is that Paul communicates his own personal weaknesses. And then he points us to the fact that Jesus is in control and working all things together for those who trust God. He shows us both his difficulty and God's ability to be able to redeem that. But there is a gate that you need to go through. Because Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed about the troubles we've experienced in the province of Asia, far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. But then verse 10, he says, he has delivered us from such a deadly peril. He, uh, uh, he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, and he will continue to deliver us. So you get this pain, you get this brokenness, and then you get this God can deliver us. He has delivered us. He will deliver us. How do you get from here to here? And here's the gate. There's a gate to go through, and the gate is this. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that indeed we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death, but this happened, but this happened, but this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Friends, the way that you get from brokenness to a place of, of healing and strength is when you realize that God is at work really to wean you off yourself and onto God. If we, if we are to truly experience gospel power in our lives, we need to realize that the resources that we need to get through life aren't found in and of ourselves. 
Friends, I just want to suggest to you that it is so easy for us to drift into a place of self-reliance. If, if, if the Apostle Paul could acknowledge that all of the challenges that he went through in his life was God's way of lovingly weaning him off himself and onto God, if, if Paul could get into a place of self-reliance, then I just want to suggest to you, so can all of us. And friends, Self-reliance is so difficult to spot because self-reliance is hard-working, self-reliance is diligent, self-reliance is focused, it's, it's running on all engines and yet it is destined to fail because it's rooted in self and not rooted in God. It's very interesting that in Jeremiah 17, the blessed life, the life that's pictured like a tree planted by a stream, evergreen, drought-proof, always bearing fruit, is reserved for those who trust in the Lord and place their confidence in Him. But the cursed life that's described in Jeremiah 17, a life characterized by barrenness and dissatisfaction and loneliness, isn't reserved for the wicked, the ungodly, and the licentious. No, Jeremiah 17 simply reads, cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength. The cursed life is the self-reliant life. No, no wonder Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Friends, it's possible to be running hard. It's possible to be running for Jesus, but it's possible to be doing all of that on your own strength. And when you're doing it on your own strength, friends, it's poison. It's poison for your family. It's poison for the local church. It's poison for the ministry that you're involved in. God lovingly and graciously wants to wean us off ourselves and to onto Him. The beautiful thing that we see about God here in 2 Corinthians 1 is that God wants to wean us off ourselves and off self-reliance, not in order to downsize us, not in order to expose us, but rather because He's actually got greater ambitions for us than we've even got for ourselves. It's really interesting that in 2 Corinthians 12, by the end of this book, when Paul reflects on all that God is doing. He speaks about his thorn in the flesh, and he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Friends, there is a reality of gospel power that when we will acknowledge our weaknesses, when we will acknowledge our deficiencies, God doesn't say absolutely right and rub our nose in it. No, no, no. When we acknowledge our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities, it positions us to receive power from God to do the work that He has called us to. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. His grace is sufficient for me. His power is made perfect in weakness. God isn't turned off by our weakness. He's attracted to our weakness, and He wants to empower us in the midst of our weakness. Gateway Church, what do you believe in and trust in God for? Maybe some of you think, well, we, I, I used to trust for big things, and I gave it a full go, but it didn't really work, so I'm not really trusting for much anymore. Maybe it's time not to trust in your own strength. Maybe it's time to trust in God's strength. 
maybe it's time to say, God, I know that if it's just left to me, it's nothing. But actually, if I put myself in your hands and I <coughs> allow you to empower me, well, Lord, you can do incredible things. You can truly do amazing things. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your love and mercy. Lord, I want to thank you for this church. I want to thank you for these dear folk. Thank you that you love them with an everlasting love. Lord, I pray that this genuinely would be a community that's defined by the gospel. Lord, I really pray that gospel honesty would truly characterize this church, that this wouldn't need to be a gathering of people who need to fake it and pretend that they're practically perfect in every way, but they're people that can be genuinely honest about their vulnerabilities and their weaknesses. Lord, I pray for any here that are going through a difficult patch. Lord, I pray this morning that they would trust you, they would look to you, and they would know you empowering them to do things that they know that they couldn't do on their own strength. Lord, I pray that your power would be made perfect in weakness. I pray for a new day and new resources to do things that we could never do on our own strength. I ask this in your name and for your glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.